hppodcraft.com. Myth or otherwise, the sculptures told of the coming of those star-headed things to the nascent, lifeless Earth out of cosmic space. Their coming, and the coming of many other alien entities such as at certain times embark upon spatial pioneering. They seemed able to traverse the interstellar ether on their vast membranous wings, thus oddly confirming some curious hill folklore long ago told me by an antiquarian colleague. They had lived under the sea a good deal, building fantastic cities and fighting terrific battles with nameless adversaries by means of intricate devices employing unknown principles of energy. Evidently, their scientific and mechanical knowledge far surpassed man's today, though they made use of its more widespread and elaborate forms only when obliged to. Some of the sculptures suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets, but had receded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying. Their preternatural toughness made them able to live on a high plane without the more specialized fruits of artificial manufacture, and even without garments except for occasional protection against the elements. Ladies and gentlemen, that is H.P. Lovecraft, the nudist. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 Chad. That is the first paragraph of Chapter 7 of... At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. It did seem like some kind of advocacy for nudism. Um, no. I want to know who you are and what you're what you're doing here. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. Who are you? I'm Chris Lackey. And uh, with us, not fortunately for him, physically, <laughs> is Ian Colbard. Hi, Ian. Glad to have you back. And it's nice to be back. Where are we talking to you from, by the way? England. <laughs> you gonna, do you want to be that vague with it? Yeah. Are, are, that's do, a big island, man. Do you have the mob after you? Or that's why you're being as vague as you are? Yeah. <laughs> Where specifically in the UK are you, my friend? I'm in Nottingham. Ah, Nottingham. It's a beautiful place, Nottingham. Is it? Yeah, I've been down there. Yeah, what do they got? They've got, well, there's a forest. Mm-hmm. There's a big forest. You might have heard <laughs> there are that. trees. And yeah. trees. But no, just it's a beautiful a beautiful place, beautiful buildings. It's it's old. It's fairly happening. Mm. There's, what, two or three comic book stores there? Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Good that you mentioned comic book stores because um, our guest here, Ian, is a comic book uh, author. Author and artist. He did the adaptation, which we didn't even mention in the last episode. He no. did a, a graphic <laughs> novel. Adap- Sorry about that. He did a graphic novel adaptation <laughs> of At the Mountains of Madness that uh, is on sale in all of your reputable comic book shops. If right. they don't have it, you should ask them to order it or you know just get it online from amazon you can get it in france as well where it's called oh. le montagne hallucine Ooh, i think la. i pronounced that correctly <laughs> and that's published by achilleos in france oh great and ian you're working on uh, the case of charles dexter ward right now yeah yeah published by a uh, self-made hero you also you adapted uh, the dunwich horror yeah with rob davis adapting it and me illustrating it for the lovecraft anthology volume one again for self-made hero and it's great Let's talk a little bit about At the Mountains of Madness. That opening quote, read by uh, reader Joe Freya, who's been with us the whole time. Mm-hmm. What, what is that, what's it talking about? It is talking about the origin of life on Earth. Oh, my God. This, uh, Chad, i got to say that this is probably my most favorite chapter of my most favorite H.P. Lovecraft story. You start learning some stuff. It's so exciting. And yeah. I feel like when Lovecraft wrote The Mound, he, it was practice for this stuff. Like, yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is the best I'm, it's so exciting, it's so cool, it's so interesting and different. Oh, I, love I agree, because it so it's like when you guys were doing the, the, the program about the mound, um, 
That's exactly what I was thinking. It's like when you get to mountains, that is like a dry run for mountains because essentially, yeah. And when he was doing that in uh, the mound, it was exciting. But it, it, God, this tops it. Oh my gosh, yeah, totally buries it. I don't know if I'd say exciting in the mound. <laughs> you, you and I might uh, disagree on that one, Ian. But uh, but definitely, it, this is this is really exciting. Well, well I one, quite like the mound, but um, we're a difference of opinion. We are. Yeah, we we are. <laughs> I, the uh, uh, the interesting thing in the in the last bit there is that it explains why these elder things have lived for millions of years without decaying because they evolved to such a state that they don't need clothes they don't need machines yeah they don't need laptops no you know they don't need any of this stuff in fact everything with these creatures is somewhat organic and life-based and in a paragraph after that they talk about you know they first had lived under the sea and while they were there they needed to create some kind of food now Mm -hmm. i think in interstellar space they actually needed no nutrients at all that gets said later but but when they first when they move to earth they put down their first month's rent and they they do the security (laughs) deposit they, uh, they're like, well, we need something to eat, but there's nothing here yet. It's just a big, presumably, ball of hardened gas with water. They need to create some stuff, so they create Earth life, which is the Shoggoths. Yeah. Well, I mean, in their experiments, they, they're just messing around with stuff, but they need food, and they need workers, and so the Shoggoths are sort of their first Earth experiment. Yeah. And there's all these sort of side effects. There's these microorganisms, one-celled things, bacteria, and if it doesn't bother them, if it's not causing a problem, they just kind of let it go. Yeah. And these things have evolved into us and trees and complex organisms and all right. that stuff, man. Yeah. So that's what we are. That's all of our life is just sort of a side effect. Right. You know, an accident or... A discarded part of the experiment. Yeah. This viscous material called the Shoggoths. Now, when he first says it in the story here, he puts quotes around it. Yeah. And then it's never, there's never quotes around it uh, again. I think the reason why the, the quotes are around it is it's referenced in the Necronomicon, Shoggoths. Mm. That's where he gets this word from. Right. And Abdul Al-Hazred, the, the guy that wrote the Necronomicon, wasn't even sure if they were real. You know, he mentions them in, in, in the Necronomicon, but, it's, uh, well, you know, they're legendary. Yeah. Well, I think he was sure. Yeah. He just didn't want anybody. He even, didn't... even Abdul, who writes the Necronomicon, which is the most mind-blowing text of all time, even even yeah. in that, he kind of hid some truth. He didn't want people to know that no. this was the real stuff. Yeah. But the Shoggoths are kind of uh, worker bees, right? Yeah. They had helped build these cities that the... And they're immensely strong. Exactly. They could lift big stone blocks and bring them up to the top right. of buildings and, and that kind of thing. But, these, but the Shoggoths at this point were just water-based creatures because all life started in the water. And, yeah. and as a matter of record, you know, on Earth, 80% of all life is in the oceans. It's still... Today. Yeah, yeah today. 80% of all living things, 80% live right. in the oceans. Yeah. That's crazy. But obviously, yeah. that's where that's where the good stuff happens, and that's why the Shoggoths are down there, because... <laughs> Do you think 80% of good stuff is still happening down there? Um, parties we haven't been invited to at absolutely. all? Absolutely. Yeah. It also references here the old ones. They had different lifestyles for different depths. Those who were on the top, they were closer to the surface. They're writing and they're sculpting. And those that are deeper down, they start physically, they develop phosphorescence and that kind of yeah. thing when they're at the different depths. Yeah. And they're super tough. Like, even the, the old ones that are way, way, way deep down in highly pressurized parts of the abyss, they're not, it doesn't bother them at no. all. Nothing's going to implode well, them. These right. guys are pretty, I mean, they can survive interstellar space and right. the deepest pressures of the ocean. So they're just tough. This stuff is so neat. So they, they reproduce through spores, mm-hmm. much like vegetables, but they really don't reproduce that much unless they want to colonize another part of the planet, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're sort of immortal in a way. Yeah, they don't die. They only die by accidental death, and that doesn't happen very often. Or by a murder. (laughs) 
they can live off of inorganic substances if they want right. to, yeah. but they do prefer meat. So vegetarianism is an option. It is an option, yeah. Well, not even vegetarianism. They could eat rocks. I mean, they could even yeah. go from that. They don't need to eat that. They could just be photosynthetic. He says that when they're out in space, they can use the sun's energy to you know, power them, so they don't need to. But when they get to Earth, they decide that they want to eat meat. Yeah, they have a personality, and it's not, it's kind of, that makes them a little sinister. Absolutely. They, they prefer to create something that they can then hunt and kill right. and eat. Uh-huh. And, it, and, it, yeah. and, it, and it gives them a little bit of, of personality. Yeah, absolutely. At that point, we're just looking at it's sort of a fossil record. This is what they were, but that, you know, and, and it's sort of when you're a kid and you, um, the dinosaurs that you prefer, the carnivores, or at least me, I'd hear about the brontosaurus and I'd think, meh. Whatever. That guy just ate veggies. Get me on to the guy who's you know killed things. That's yeah. the interesting stuff. Well, it's all, it's my or, or like a, like in a Jurassic Park movie, he's basically a cow. Right. So it's nice. And then I'm thinking because I'm a meat eater. Yeah. So you can eat it. Yep. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, but they also um, talk about how uh, when they were doing their building at this point too in the story. They were using pterodactyls to like lift big, heavy things yeah. out. Because at this point, the Shawcots were still confined to underwater. And when they started mm-hmm. doing stuff on the land, they were manipulating dinosaurs to do to do work for them. Well, another <laughs> interesting fact, too, they, that Lovecraft talks about is that these things have, they don't really have family structures like mammals do, That they no. but they do have relationships and they sort of have, cre- you know, they dwell with some others and they sort of form these bonds, but it's yeah. not... It's not like a mammalian families, and they're not, you know, attached to their offspring and things as, as, as humans are. Yeah, they live in kind of communes or um, relationship sets or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, which is a little similar to uh, the Kenyan stuff. Yeah. Remember where those, those immortal guys... They had affection didn't? groups. They had affection groups, that they call and, them. And uh, it says, in one of the actual quotes, he says, government was complex and probably socialistic. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. Do you think that uh, do you think there's anything aspirational in this writing? Do you think that Lovecraft's view of political systems was changing at all, or is this simply? I mean, what what do you think this? I a lot of Lovecraft's writing, he was pretty socialist in his letters and things that, that came across, and I think in his mind, in an idealized society, that that's just the way things would be, and that everybody again, and it's the same as it was in Kenya. Yeah, everybody's got time to enjoy and appreciate art and science mm-hmm. and learning, and and people aren't worried about having to eat or getting medical attention and all those stuff, which I think is a you know, pretty cool thing to aspire to. They have money. Yeah, which is those, remember those crazy soapstone star things. Oh, is that what that is? I be- yeah. That's it's a small flat counter. Well, yeah, I guess that is what it is. Well, oh, so no. when they discover the soapstone, they, they just found like some pirate gold. It could be. Wait, hold on. Probably the smaller of the various greenish soapstones found by our expedition were pieces of such currency. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. All, all kinds of life forms grew out of the Shoggoth creation, and, and I love how they say some escape notice. They exterminated some of them. Yeah. <laughs> if it was bothersome to them, they'd wipe it out. But otherwise, it's, it's really interesting how they're kind of negligent. It seems like if it was bad science fiction, uh-huh. they would have been complete masters of the whole planet. But there's room for error there, yeah. where they just kind of started yeah. making stuff, and some things flaked off, and, and they didn't really pay attention to it because they had their own things going on. Right. That's that's really cool, you know. There's so they're making mistakes, which is sort of similar to humans. Yeah, and there's a, all the time. It's a parallel, and that I th- later on is going to pay off. And I think that's where Lovecraft's kind of uh, building to. But but continue. One thing that they see in some of these sculptures that's chilling is they see the elder things or the old ones as they're called now, uh, kind of making fun of some simian-like shapes. Yeah, <laughs> simians that are very similar to. To humans. I mean, they're like picking on them or making fun of them or something. Yeah. <laughs> making some jokes about monkeys. <laughs> Which I think if we're, if, you know, before we were weighing, is it a mistake or a joke? 
I think I'm pretty heavy on the joke side now after that. <laughs> it's a pretty good one, really, the joke. Right, right, yeah. That's a good joke. We're yeah. fools. The original place of advent to the planet was the Antarctic Ocean. That's where they came first. Mm -hmm. That was their bachelor apartment to begin with. And it's likely that they came not long after the moon was wrenched from the South Pacific. Yeah. Now, did that happen? That is a theory that, that the Earth was hit, you know, long, long time ago before anything, yeah. you know, when it was still kind of hot and just forming, that either it collided with another planet or there was some kind of... Asteroid. Well, he's not talking about another planet here. He's saying the moon came out of the Earth. No, no. Something hit the Earth, and when it hit the Earth, a big piece of it broke off, okay. and that was the moon. Well, this was, I think they call that the fission theory, that the moon came from the Earth. People dismiss that eventually because they say that that moon then should contain some kind of fossil evidence of the Earth, but it doesn't. But now I, I think it's the giant impactor theory is what it's called. Where, which Chris was just saying, which right. is that a small planet struck the Earth around the formation of the solar system, and a bunch of heated material yeah. came off of both objects, and the moon formed from this material. So, there, you know, it is part of the Earth, but it's also part of something else, and, and that's what the moon is. But I believe that moon rock is not common to Earth, either. Right, so. exactly. Yeah. So something else was involved. There was some third party that got in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hot. Yeah. That's what I say. Yeah. There's lots of science here. I mean, there's the Pangea stuff comes in. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right, Pangea? Yeah. Mm -hmm. When all the yeah. continents were connected at one point, yeah. he brings that up lots of times. In fact, it says here... With the upheaval of new land in the South Pacific, tremendous events began. Some of the marine cities were hopelessly shattered. Yet that was not the worst misfortune. Another race. A land race of beings shaped like octopi and probably corresponding to the fabulous pre-human spawn of Cthulhu soon began filtering down from cosmic infinity and precipitated a monstrous war which, for a time, drove the Old Ones wholly back to the sea, a colossal blow in view of the increasing land settlements. Later, peace was made, and the new lands were given to the Cthulhu spawn whilst the Old Ones held the sea and the older lands. New land cities were founded, the greatest of them in the Antarctic, for this region of first arrival was sacred. From then on, as before, the Antarctic remained the center of the Old One civilization, and all the discoverable cities built there by the Cthulhu spawn were blotted out. Then suddenly the lands of the Pacific sank again, taking with them the frightful stone city of Raleigh and all the cosmic octopi, so that the Old Ones were again supreme on the planet, except for one shadowy fear about which they did not like to speak. At a rather later age, their cities dotted all the land and water areas of the globe. Hence the recommendation in my coming monograph that some archaeologists make systematic borings with Peabody's type of apparatus in certain widely separated regions. Wow. All right, before we get into the, the actual <laughs> contents of that paragraph, I just want to say this whole story is written to discourage explorers <laughs> from checking out the Antarctic, okay? And at the end yeah. of that paragraph, he says, I have a recommendation that archaeologists should go start boring into other parts of... What is he talking about? Yeah. Why does he want archaeologists to do that? Yeah. It seems contradictory to me. It does. I agree. I'm with you on this one. Okay. Yeah. Good. I, I, Ian? Yep. Yeah. That gives my vote. It is contradictory. Okay. <laughs> good. Good. But there's some crazy stuff in there. We get Cthulhu mythos. Oh, my God. That, it's blowing my mind. It's so exciting. We get some perspective on Cthulhu. You know, it's not just a god, and this is sort of where things are changing. Because mm -hmm. before, yeah. Cthulhu was this unknowable crazy thing that existed. It was a, it was a god. Cthulhu yeah. was a god. It's a god sleeping in the ocean. Now, it, Lovecraft is changing his mythos to make Cthulhu into an alien. It's, it's not a god. It's, well, I mean, it's an yeah. advanced form of alien life that we, have, we can never understand, but it's still 
quantifiable. It's still measurable. And it had some kind of agenda. And it had a war with the other things. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of kicked their ass, too. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> they had to go back home. Right, yeah. They went back to Antarctica and had to, you know, lick their wounds and, and just kind of deal with it. But then... <laughs> Fate, fate changed for them, and relayed uh, due to some kind of cataclysm, yeah. sunk, went into the ocean. So, yeah. what what's going on? These things offer so many more questions than answers. I, I want to know exactly. Maybe when it sunk, there was some other thing that was involved. It didn't just. You would think that they're so advanced they would know when a city sinks that there's a reason for it, and. If Cthulhu's trapped down there, how, why is he trapped? I don't know. It's been referenced a couple of times that, that all of these cities sinking into the ocean. In, in a few Lovecraft stories, it's been referenced. Right. But the actual cause of it, it might just be geological. It might just be something that happened with the planet. You know, I think he wants to leave that open because every mythology has a flood myth. And so it yeah. kind of ties in with our perceived history of the planet. Well, he, br- he brings that up a lot. He brings up Lemuria. He brings up Atlantis. Mm-hmm. You know, he... Is really he doesn't believe it's Lovecraft has said that he doesn't think Atlantis ever was real or existed, but it's just really interesting and it's exciting to think of these lost civilizations that somehow got too big for their britches and didn't anticipate certain things like this big cataclysm that was going to happen and, and sink the city. Up until this point, we've had everything that's been going on on the children's table at the party, and then we get to this bit, and this is the grown-ups' table, and this is the real thing that's actually been going on. A lot of things like the worship of him as a god, that's a, that's a human perception of it, an earthly thing. Yeah. But as an actual fact, this is the real situation of what was going on. They moved in, they were terrible neighbors. <laughs> 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 they had a big fight, yeah. they kept lighting their barbecues late at night, so they kept the kids awake with the parties. And, and it's so interesting that you say that, Ian, because while I was reading this, I actually feel like At the Mountains of Madness is, and it's a really simple metaphor, but it is a metaphor for the transition from childhood to adulthood. Because these, yeah. these explorers go out to the Antarctic very innocent, mm-hmm. very hopeful, yeah. and they, they don't really know about this part of the world. Right. So, I, I, I mean, I feel like you, you, you start life, you've got this sense of adventure and innocence, and slowly you begin to learn about the adult world. Yeah. And you're, because you're not a part of it, it is completely alien to you when you're a child. And you do this, you do it through observation, maybe not of what you're told, but what of what adults are leaving behind. Their photos, their television programs, not the ones they're telling you to watch, but the ones they watch. Things that, that are yeah. part of their culture and their art. And uh, slowly as you begin to understand the culture, you start to understand that there's also some perversion to it and some cruelty. And, and a little bit of nobility as well. And then ultimately you understand that you are a product of some accident in this adult world. Yeah. That you are. <laughs> you're, and, and, and hopefully you're loved by your parents, but the vastness of the adult culture in the world, it dwarfs you. And you, you, as, you get, as you gain in age, you learn your own insignificance. And then eventually yeah. you finally find respect for adults because you enter their world when you become an adult. And then sadly as a parent you realize that <laughs> they're just big kids with more responsibilities. Exactly. <laughs> But, you know, and I don't want to preview the end of this too much, but I think that once you finally have that realization and you find your place in that world, yeah. that's when death starts creeping out of the tunnel. Yeah. And you start yeah. to have a realization that that's coming. And, uh, you know, you do everything you can to escape it, but eventually you're going to glimpse back and you're going to see it. Dude, that is, yeah. <laughs> that, is very, I mean. that is very insightful, man. Yeah, 100%, because I think it ties in with a fundamental thing that I saw in the book when I first read it, which is uh, it's a revelatory thing. Yeah. It goes from 
everything is about oh my god this is this is the big thing but there are bigger revelations to come they are there are there are and, and we'll, we're gonna do it when it's, we do, when and it's another uh, another thing too Chad when you were talking about when how people worshipped Cthulhu and it's so, so mm. such a primitive thing that when humans don't understand things they make them into gods you know when the, mm-hmm. the sun was a god yeah. like, what is this thing so let's worship it let's kill things let's do things for this and it doesn't care like the sun doesn't care if you're killing things yeah. and doing things for it and just like that Cthulhu doesn't care if no. you're worshipping him or doing any of this stuff like it's so does honey badger exactly. honey badger don't care honey badger doesn't care which is why I now worship the honey badger no but it doesn't it doesn't care about you Chad <laughs> don't don't worship the but honey it's badger so it powerful. won't get you anything it won't uh, give you we'll anything we'll see we'll see what happens as more land masses form on Earth, the old ones begin to migrate up there, and, and part of this is so that they can use life forms on land to do their dirty work. Now, some of these things that weren't Shoggoths that kind of spawned off and, and developed and evolved, they kind of need them now because over the lifespan, the old ones have forgotten how to create life. Yeah. And so they have to rely on the Shoggoths that are already in existence. Right. And th- those are only kind of sea animals. They're the Shoggoths of the sea. <laughs> yeah, right. They refer to a couple of times, which would be like the worst SeaWorld exhibit ever. <laughs> uh, just formless masses yeah. floating in the water it's, and scare it's you. One of those things, too, that I find so fascinating about this is life changes so quickly from a, you know, an eons kind of scale for, for humanity. I mean, humans have only really been around for you know, a few uh, tens of thousands of years, as opposed to these, the old ones, the elder things, are are thinking in millions of years. You know what I mean? So uh, we have so limited of an understanding of even a thousand years ago for our our Mm -hmm. civilization, you know, our Mm -hmm. history. So think of how much gets lost or how much things change for millions of years. And and then it's so, it's even, even if it's really, really slow, it's still, it's just so amazing. Well, you know, you think about about the Republic of Rome and everything that was possible in that southern part of Europe. Yeah. And it was a very modern society. And then we had the Middle Ages. We had the medieval Dark Ages, yeah. you know, where things, people forgot how to do things. Really technologically. Well, to be fair as well, I mean, when you look at Inuit fishing communities, and there's certain skills that are lost within one generation. Yeah. So it just takes one generation of people to forget something. Wow. That's even more scary. I mean, from Rome, at least we got straight roads and indoor plumbing. And <laughs> hey, man, my dad could fix any car. Any yeah. car. Just fix it. <laughs> not, not this guy. But here's the, th- here's the thing too about that. I find this so exciting and interesting. Is our society is I, I think of it as when we build technology, you're building like a tower out of out of blocks, and mm-hmm. that it gets higher and higher yeah. because we're building technology builds on technology that builds, builds on technology, and if something tips that tower over, those top blocks are for sure gonna get lost. And how far, how many of those blocks are going to fall down? If, if for some reason our culture, maybe some kind of disease mm-hmm. happens or some kind of uh, global catastrophe, we're going to be starting back to uh, maybe dark ages again. You know, mm-hmm. build engines and ga- gasoline. Like how hard, it, it's so hard to, I have no idea how to make gasoline, mm-hmm. how to find the materials. And everything is just built on something else. It's built on something else. It's built on, and it's going to, it's so precarious. What I'm trying to say. Here's another thing that can go wrong: your slaves can get willful. Yep. And yep. Uh, that's what happens with the Shoggoths of the Sea. They acquire a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence. 
uh, which presents a formidable problem. They had always been controlled through the hypnotic suggestion of the Old Ones, and had modeled their tough plasticity into various useful temporary limbs and organs. But now their self-modeling powers were sometimes exercised independently, and in various imitative forms implanted by past suggestion. They were normally shapeless entities composed of a viscous jelly which looked like an agglutination of bubbles, and each averaged about 15 feet in diameter when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume, throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing, and speech in imitation of their masters, either spontaneously or according to suggestion. That's really horrible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you draw that? <laughs> the first thing it's going to learn to do is it's going to learn to back chat, isn't it? It's going to learn to back talk, I suppose, as you would say, or oh, yeah. whatever the phrase is. But it would it would be straight away in there with, um, you know, some. It would learn sarcasm straight <laughs> off the bat. Well, I think of uh, uh, a Planet of the Apes. You know, the first ape that said no. Caesar. Caesar. Yeah. Caesar, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and toward the middle of the Permian Age, which is about 150 million years ago, uh-huh. it's war. Of the resubjugation. Yeah. That's what they call it, the war of the resubjugation. So you know how it turns out. Yeah, you, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Skip to the end. Well, hey, I'm on the Shoggoth side. Those are my people. Yeah, they're pretty you know? cool. Well, yeah, well, they're our yeah. people. That's, uh, you know, yeah. we're, we're, uh, we're from those guys. But, you know, in the Shoggoths, they don't kid around. The headless, slime-coated fashion in which they typically left their slain victims held a marvelously fearsome quality despite the intervening abyss, abyss of untold ages. They're looking at this in the sculptures and the bas-reliefs, seeing how the Shoggoth dispatched their enemies. Yeah. It's, it's pretty gruesome. It's gruesome. It cuts yeah. the heads off. Boom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost a little bit of uh, the French Revolution there, you know? Yeah, yeah it yeah. is. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. But, That's you awesome. know, the old ones have uh, some curious weapons. What does it say? Curious weapons of molecular disturbance. Yeah. Some That's kind what of they... death rays. Atom. The atom bomb. Oh, the atom bomb. right. Yeah. So you get your first atomic explosion in the Antarctic, which is kind of... Yeah, that's pretty scary. Yeah, I, it, I didn't even put that together. I was just thinking of uh, death rays. I just thought they had some. Well, heck, I, the Lovecraft is a death ray because that hasn't happened yet. But that's no, yeah, you know, that's right. They said this is getting out of hand. The Shoggoths will never surrender, so we have to nuke them. Yeah, <laughs> boom. Yeah, but after that happened, the Shoggoths were like, they were tamed. They were tamed and broken as the wild horses of the American West were tamed by cowboys. <laughs> Suddenly throws out like a rawhide reference. You know what I mean? It just seemed like so out, of, out of nowhere. But, you know, during the, the rebellion, the Shoggoths had shewn an ability to live out of water. Uh-huh. That, that wasn't encouraged. They didn't want that yeah. to, to happen. Yeah. So they kept the, they kept the Shoggoths in the water and mm-hmm. got rid of any kind of genetic modifications that might have happened naturally. Now, during the Jurassic Age, the Old Ones met fresh adversity in the form of a new invasion from outer space. Yeah. What's, what's uh, that yeah. all about? The half-fungus, half-crustacean uh, creatures from Yaga. Yeah. The Migos. So he's bringing back into this story the stuff that he did in Whisper in Darkness. All the stuff with the Migos yeah. and what's going on with them, which makes it really exciting because Migos are still around and they're doing stuff. Yeah. And he talks about Wilmarth here and how Wilmarth was telling him all these things and he's piecing it all together. Oh man, it's so cool. Yeah, so they had to go back yeah. home again. Yeah. The, the, but also during that war, they, they wanted to go back out into space maybe and they couldn't remember they how to remember do it. They don't remember how to go out into but space. But it's funny, it says... Uh, they uh, attempted to sally forth again into the planetary ether. It's just funny. They, w- they had to sally forth. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny to me. But these battles in the text let us know that the old ones, they're made of different stuff. 
than the Migo or the Cthulhu spawn, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The old ones are material; they're made of the same right. the same junk that we are, but. Yeah. But the Migos and Cthulhu Spawn are interdimensional, weird. Remember in, in Whisper in Darkness how when they try to take pictures of them, it didn't work. Because or in Call of Cthulhu, when they hit him with a boat, he explodes in a puff of smoke. Yes, basically. and then reforms. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not, there's something about their material that's just not even earthly. They're, yeah, they're not on yeah. any, they're totally different than us. You know, not carbon-based life forms. Who knows what the heck they're, these things are made of. But with the elder things, we're of their same kind of stock. You know, they mm-hmm. seem to have some kind of cell structure like we have. So the the, the whole war, I mean, it, it appears that some kind of truce was made or something like that. And basically, they say, you get Vermont and we'll move back to Antarctica. <laughs> they create a new city in Antarctica. And in the new city, many of the features of which Dyer and Danforth can recognize in the sculptures, yep. this is where they are right now. So they've, they've followed the whole story of the history of the mm-hmm. Earth. And they've gotten yeah. to their present location. And then the Migo, we've covered that they got banished to the... Well, they're not banished. They settled in the Himalayas. Right. I said Vermont, but they... they uh, <laughs> they're in the Himalayas. They also, well, well, they're in the Himalayas, too, the, because that's how we get the abominable snowman and, right. and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, yeah you're right. Absolutely. Because the... Uh, oh, some connection with the Tibetan Migo, which is uh, Yeti. Yeah, right. It's been a word for, for Yeti. Yeah. yeah. So that's where they are now. And obviously, Dyer and Danforth are very interested in the news about this particular city that they're in. They're going to study a little bit more about that, and I think that'll get us into our, our next episode. Yeah, that yep. that's, kind of rounds up uh, chapter chapter seven for us. And yeah, yeah, I think that'll whoop. we got more to go, but not too much more. Not much more. Almost yeah. it's almost the end of chapter seven, but there's some cool stuff that we will yeah. we'll tag on to the there's end. There's some of this. chase scenes, and there's some, oh my gosh. It's good stuff. So, Ian, uh, once again, you'll join us next week? Absolutely. All right, great. Sweet. We're going to get into our sixth episode next week. Wow. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. I want to say thanks to Joe Freya for doing our readings. Also, thanks to Reber Clark for continually providing the good stuff. Oh, it's so great. It sounds wonderful. It makes yeah. this show so much more exciting with this music. Uh, I want to thank Mike Mann for, for helping us out with the tech side of things. Great job, Mike. Brooke Burgess for being a, a really cool person in general. Thank you so much, Brooke. And uh, that's all we got. With that, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the HP Love Cold. No crap. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm Ian Coldbud. I did a Ryan Keel. so used to doing it. No, you, do, you were doing it right, Chad. Just, yeah, I'm just the fool. Steamrolled over you. Yes! And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. <laughs> <laughs>